Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the weekly podcast that explores the nooks and crannies of living in a body. Sometimes it's the two of us having a casual conversation through the filter of that day's topic, and other times we have special guests who add their voices to the chat. We are yoga educators and body workers with decades of experience as practitioners and teachers. It is with reverence and joy that we choose to take these conversations off the mat and into the microphone. Our aim is to understand the human experience through the stories our bodies hold and the stories they tell. Since having a body is the one thing we all have in common, it seems like a good place to start. We are your hosts. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. And I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Join us on this journey of discovery as we sleuth our way to the connections of our individual tales to the collective experience of being alive. Whoa, so can you believe it? What is this? Episode 36 and we are starting a new season. Yeah, we are. <sighs> oh yeah, the, science and stories. You know, we, we focus so much on the anecdotal anatomy piece, which is full and total and wonderful. And then the tagline, science and stories. You know, we talk about the stories our bodies hold and tells, but where do we hold it? How do we hold it? How do we release it? Why are stories important? Why do we even care? Why do we give a shit about the stories our bodies are holding and telling as we're moving through life, trying to meet each moment as they come? You know, what's the importance of our story? And where do the stories come from? Why are stories such an important part of how we communicate and how we keep people in our lives, create uh, relationships and share information? Our stories are just part of our culture. They're part of how our families run. They're part of our history, part of our culture. Everything that happens is wrapped up in a story, even our own, I feel, even our own experiences become a story and we will experience something. And then in order to share this fabulous or traumatic or happy or sad, whatever that experience is, we have a story to share with others so that they can um, also understand or maybe lend support or what, or just, or just listen. Yeah. Just be there to listen and allow us to tell our story. I found this in Why Stories Matter from the British Council. So it's a britishcouncil.org backslash backslash all sorts of other stuff. But he says, human life is centered around storytelling and communication. It takes center stage in our day-to-day -day life. I love this. He says, we are literally, and I don't always use the word literally, but he says, we are literally moving stories waiting to be told. And it is why storytelling is perhaps one of the greatest means of impact. Reflect on this for a minute, and just then you will realize how many stories you have consumed, even without your permission, unquote. <laughs> There's much more in this that I, I would like to read as we go, but I think that's enough reading for one, one little snippet. <laughs> one little snippet. <laughs> what, what caught my attention there is that we are these moving stories waiting to be told, Yet there are so many stories that are that we are filtering through our consciousness without even really being conscious about it. You know, that we walk down the street and we see, you know, maybe a, a mother and a child having 
a conversation and we tell a story about either we hear what they're actually saying or we create a story around what we think they're saying. Something is happening in that moment when we take in an image. And this is happening all day long as we move through our lives. We're taking things in and filtering them through the lenses of our own perceptions and histories and experiences. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, some of those things that we observe, that we see, that story that's coming into our vision at this particular moment, it touches a story that we have inside. It touches a similar situation that we have been in in the past. Maybe the mother and child that we're looking at there and we're telling a story about, maybe the scene looks so familiar of something that happened when I was that child's age. And it just triggers the memory of the story of me and my mom doing something similar or being you know, maybe we viewed them going into the food store, going to buy their school supplies. And I was in um, buying a calendar the other day at um, Office Max. Yep, I didn't get it on Amazon. <laughs> I went actually to Office Max and picked it out. But there were moms and kids getting school supplies there too, also not ordering from Amazon and uh, going out and building that that memory, that experience of like buying your notebook and your pencils and whatever else is on the list. But when I looked at it, I paused for a minute and I was like, oh, I remember, you know, doing that. I remember. And it just opened up this file cabinet of stories because after we left from gathering all of our supplies, we had to cover our books. And we used to use brown paper bags, (laughs) right? And you turn it inside out Uh so you couldn't see what store it was from and cover the books so that they were not messy and dirty at the end of the year when we had to put it in. But from one simple noticing of a mom, moms and their kids collecting their school supplies, I was in that story for a good part of my day, just strolling down memory lane and revisiting old stories. And you just threw me into that. My dad was a genius at making those book covers with the, with the grocery bags. We didn't necessarily turn them inside out to cover where they were from, but so that we could doodle all over them. We used to, you know, color them with different magic markers and crayons and, you know, create these, these really cool, but I sucked at, I can't, you know, I didn't start wrapping gifts well until I married someone who celebrates Christmas. I never celebrated (laughs) Christmas growing up. So, and my wrapping revealed that, but over time now I would probably be really good at covering those books because I've gotten pretty good at wrapping Christmas gifts. (laughs) But so one story leads into the next, into the next. And those marble composition books, you brought up school supplies. All of a sudden, there are these marble composition books in my head, and I'm opening it up and taking a big whiff. Like that smell of new school supplies also just like, booyah, takes you right into story. They have the times tables on the back of the marble (laughs) thing so that you could look at this little graph and you would know your times tables. (laughs) And... You know, that was one of the punishments in our school. If you we like were talking or doing something, it was like, go home and write your times tables five times for blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like we were going to remember them. You know, my story is if you want me to write my times tables and it's, you know, 12 to 12, I go one through 12 times, 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 <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. <laughs> and then copy it out of the back. I really didn't learn it, but I sure did spend an awful lot of time practicing penmanship. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but, You know, the point, you know, about stories is they take us and our listeners on a journey. And that journey can be to 
to learn, to entertain, to discover something about themselves, to share something about ourselves. There's so many different intentions that we can put behind why we're sharing a story. Yes. And whether, you know, whether we're a good storyteller or we describe ourselves as a bad storyteller, like, oh, I'm not such a great storyteller. But we all have such amazing stories that when we share them and we bring out our personality and our vibrancy or our sadness or whatever the story is about, it's the emotion and the being real, uh, I think, that is such a powerful part of the whole um, why stories are important. And you have said this, and I don't want to step on your words because I, it was such a profound thing that you said. And so I don't want anyone to confuse it with the fact that I may have said it because you were the one who said it. But you said that the story in its most authentic form of truth comes from our sensory somatic experience. We have an experience, but then we have to find the words to put to it. And that's the telling of the story, not the living or the experiencing the story, but the telling of it. So sometimes things can get lost in translation. Sometimes there isn't the perfect word to describe the feeling. And sometimes it's hard to even find a word at all to describe the the complexity of feelings and experiences that happen in our bodies. So this is part of the bodies holding the story so that even when we can't tell it, we can maybe express it. Maybe we can show it. I don't know. Riff on that a little bit because I love that sensory piece of the story. Yeah, maybe the way that we're telling the story is verbal. Maybe it's a nonverbal telling. I'm a body worker. So, you know, when we talk about the body holding our stories, it's a concept that is sometimes for me was difficult to understand when I first became a body worker. But what I've noticed over the years is people tell me amazing stories while I am giving them a massage, while they are on my table. And they'll often say something like, I don't need to know why I'm thinking of that right now. That is such an old story. But, you know, when we really think about the body holding the story, that there's a nonverbal communication. And maybe, and this is a maybe, maybe the story is held at the place in the body where we experienced it the most, right? We had an injury. I, I broke my wrist. Maybe when somebody's working on my wrist and has that residual little ache in it, I start telling the story of breaking my wrist. But in addition to the fact that I broke my wrist and now that story comes up while it's being touched and worked on, I realize how emotionally connected I am to that story because I'm a body worker. Breaking my arm meant I didn't get to work. I had to give up working for six weeks. So then the story takes on. And as not a body worker, I'd call that vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have to work? Cool. cool. I'm on vacation. I'm, I'm retiring for the week. I'm sorry. I'm That's okay. I'm just going to call my mortgage company and say, Sherry said I'm on vacation. <laughs> Hey man, workmen's come. I don't know. There's something, there's a story there that might get that, that monthly nut net. Yeah. I guess years ago, I should have like taken out uh, disability insurance right. on my hands. <laughs> I think of George Costanza when he was the hand model, you know, putting <laughs> oven mitts on and being so protective and, you know, taking out insurance on the hands. Yeah, well, hey, as a body worker, why not? And see how many stories came out of that story. 
we just started to riff off onto everything from, you know, paying my mortgage to George Costanza <laughs> in one, like two steps. You know, oh it's like gosh. the six degrees of uh, where stories of are held in the bodies. Six yes. degrees of Seinfeld. That's my story of my life. But, you know, one of the things that came up, because you talk a lot about like when we what what we pedestrians or plebeians, I should say, call not <laughs> you've called adherencies, you know, those places that get stuck. And so even just the word stuck, stuck in a story that we've been telling and retelling so many times. I go back to this. There's um, a saying, and I think I forget exactly what culture and tradition it comes from, but it's universal in its truth. And it goes like this. A person never steps into the same river twice. The river is flowing. Not only does the river flow, but we're flowing. We're different. We change. There's that piece of us that is constantly sort of evolving, even as slow or as fast as it may be going. So the stories that we tell and retell in the same way are not. They're adherencies. They're places where we are stuck telling those stories in the same way. So we talked last week about you know, facts versus narrative, you know, that what are the, we don't want to be revisionist historians. We don't want to just be telling a falsehood in any kind of, you know, conscious way, but how can we retell the story with the integrity of the beginning, middle, middle and end as they were, but from the place where we are today, rather than the time at which that story occurred? Yeah. We talked about this when I told the donut story, that there are facts of the story. Right. And the facts are the facts. This mm -hmm. is when it happened. This is where it happened. This is who it happened with. Who, this what, where, when, and why. Yeah. Who, what, where, when, and why. Those are the facts. The rest was um, interpreted by me mm -hmm. sitting at a table with all those other people. And I bet that if we asked each and every one of them, some of them won't even remember that story because it's not significant mm -hmm. to them. It's not something that is a story that they retold. Others might look at it and give me a completely different perspective of what happened in the donut story. So it's a very subjective view of a specific place. Going back to your not and verbal and nonverbal communication, you know, sometimes when you're working on those knots, they melt, they go away. People are like, hey, how did you know it hurt me there? Thanks for le letting that release. But we also have in body work something called unwinding. And sometimes the expression of that story is not verbal. It might be the shaking of a hand or a twitching of the leg or something that is much more somatic than verbal to release energy that is stuck in the body. One of, you know, an unwinding is an interesting thing to think about. So I'm going to give a practice right here. Awesome. And that practice is. I want you to put down anything, if, you're, if it's possible, that you can clear your space. And then I just want you to take a nice big yawn, like a full body. Oh, oh, yawn, just like a full body. Oh, noticing what that feels like. Oh. In that yawn, if you took a full body yawn like I did and like I watched Sherry do, there was movements in the yawn. It wasn't, I said, take a yawn, a nice big full body yawn and arms go up and they reach out wide and they reach to one side and they twist. And this is just the body's natural way of saying, <laughs> oh, this is the place that needs movement. This is the place that I need to let go of. This is a place I'm holding tension. And in unwinding, one of my teachers said, unwinding 
is the reverse of the action that caused the energy to get stuck there. So there is a lot of ways, and we do look for words to share our stories, but we also share our stories by a look. Everyone has a look they know from their mom or dad. And that look <laughs> required no words whatsoever for that story to be told. My dad, I lived in a cul-de-sac when I was growing up. My dad was a big guy. And you knew when he talked, he meant something. If we were out playing, all my dad had to do was open up the front door and whistle. And eight kids dropped what they were doing and ran home for dinner. That's a story that is... <laughs> Doesn't require words, but you heard it loud and clear. And my kids have a very similar story because I can whistle very loud with my fingers. I've gotten taxi cabs. I've, you know, standing ovations at theater. I am a loud whistler. And so when my kids were little, I used to say, you know, if we were going to a school function at the elementary school, for example, and I know afterwards all the kids start running around and it's like, the bunnies have gotten loose and corralling them at the end is nearly impossible. But I would say when, if you want to play, if you want to hang out and run around, when it's time to go, you hear my whistle, you come to me, you find me. I don't want to be looking for each one of you. You come to me. So this became a thing and I would whistle really loud. They would come. I had other parents come up to me and say, how do you do that? How are you doing that? And I said, well, it's an agreement that we made and it's become part of our family story. You know, it's not a Van Trapp thing, a Captain Van Trapp where he's, you know, whistling for each kid as instead of their names. It was a time where I, I, mom's not running around. You hear it, you come. And they did. And they earned trust. They earned respect. They earned you know, the opportunity to play next time because they, they did follow suit. And, I'm, you know, that's probably the strictest thing I've, I've ever done. Um, but, you know, in the world of our mission of creating this or through our explorations, trying to find this connection between the individual and the collective, so much of what we've done, even through looking at patterns and archetypes and, you know, all of the different seasons, the koshas and the embodiment, it's all kind of led to this. And I want to read, I mean, this guy, I have so many things I want to read from him. It's a TED talk about why stories matter. And the guy's name is Tim Goundry, G-O-U-N-D-R-Y. And one of the things he says, he, quote, he goes into, I'm quoting someone who's quoting someone else. But he says, the historian Yuval Harari, um, in his book, Sapiens, which, by the way, is a fucking brilliant book. If you want to know anything about the human race, read Sapiens by Yuval Harari. But he argues that the key to human being success is that we as a species are able to cooperate with one another in large groups because we believe in collective fictions or shared stories. He identifies gods, nations, money, and even human rights as concepts that only exist in the minds of human beings. These allow thousands, millions, even billions of people to work together and organize on an otherwise unimaginable scale. That is the power of story. And that is what connects the individual to the collective. Fucking A, read Yuval Harari Sapien. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have cultural stories that connect the individual, how we played into those cultural stories. We have familiar stories, um, how our stories run. You and I both just shared different ways. And we also have stories that help us to learn, to be able to understand complex, uh, com complex theories 
So I'll, I'll just read a little bit of something right here. Organizational psychologist Peg Newhauser found that learning, which stems from a well-told story, is remembered more accurately and for far, far longer than learning derived from facts and figures. Similarly, psychologist Jerome Bruner's research suggests that facts are 20 times more likely to remember, to be remembered, if they're part of a story. And one of my best, best teachers, uh, somebody who's had a great influence on my life, was my massage teacher. He could tell a story. And every time I am trying to recall something, the first thing I remember is his story. But then the file cabinet of the lessons around that story all seemed to open. And one of the things I noticed while I was preparing, that I read about when I was preparing for today, is that storytelling has, the, uh, has aspects of all the different, the three types of learning, right? For visual learners, they appreciate the mental pictures that a story that they are imagining when they're listening to the story. Many visual learners are going to hear the story and they're going to have pictures that they relate to listening to that story. Auditory learners, and in a podcast, I guess that's who we are talking to right now. <laughs> Unless you watch our, our reels, then you'll see us in person. They connect to the storyteller's voice and they can really hone in on listening as the way that they are going to embody that story. And kinesthetic learners, they, they find the emotional connections and the feelings that arise from that story. All of them are inroads back to the story and back to the learning that is part of the uh, sharing of that story. So beautifully, you just described the origin story of anecdotal anatomy. You know, that was the reason. That was the reason that first conversation happened because you turned me on through your storytelling and through your ability to tap into the different ways that I can learn to get excited about science and anatomy and, you know, physiology and kinesiology, all the things that, you know, sort of came in through the, the first anatomy class. And so I was thinking, how do we tap the right brain thinkers, those people who, you know, understand things better through storytelling, through this, like, how do we create the way you talked about anatomy? I felt like the muscles had character, characteristics, character traits, ways that we could build the story around the muscles. But since then, you know, you learn it's, you can't isolate the muscles the same way you can't isolate the koshas. Yes, there's origin and insertion points. What's the origin story around that point? What is, you know, like that, the origin stories of the muscles? the mythology of the muscles. I'm a sucker for alliteration. So thinking about the bard of the bones, how do we tell the story, write songs, write poetry, write narratives and, and other kinds of storytelling devices to be able to share this incredibly dynamic world of our body to people who are walking around not knowing how any of it works. And, you know, I get bored easily if it, things are too academic. I love King Arthur. I love all the stories. Get me the academic books, I turn off. You know, mm. um, I love watching um, America's Got Talent and The X Factor. And what I've noticed, and even in like Ninja Warrior, you know, these shows, 
Yes, there are incredibly talented athletes doing the gauntlets at Ninja Warrior. There are incredibly talented singers and dancers and magicians and all these other people doing these other talent shows. But if you were to just show their talent without giving the context of their story, I'm noticing all of these shows, they tell the people's story and there's a compelling piece. It, there's a connection that is made from one human to another when you hear their story. If you just hear someone sing a beautiful song, it might tap into an emotion. It might make you feel, you know, you might have some response to it. But when you also know their story, the levels of that story just are exponentially opened. Yeah, the body does have just whew, so many different ways to talk about. I love the part of the bones, by the way. It's one yeah. of my favorite things. And the <laughs> other thing that I really like when you talked about when we had our original like planning, like, are we going to do this anecdotal anatomy thing? And as you know, if you're, if you're a long-term listener, you know that this was going to be a book and uh, it kept getting shelved and shelved and shelved. That's part of its origin story. The book got shelved? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> Look at that. Words matter. <laughs> so do stories. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> and it did it we kept revisiting but not doing and then the idea of the podcast came let's tell the stories yeah. in a completely different way and you said one of the things i'd like to talk about are footnotes and man that just like the arches of the foot, all the different digits, plantar fasciitis. <laughs> How the feet move you into the world and take you on your, all the adventures. Your feet have taken you on every adventure you've ever been on. Exactly. Um, <laughs> what memories do they have of every step in different, different um, settings in the earth from walking on the beach to you walked across fire, right? There's just so many different ways that our body can re-communicate the stories that we have navigated through throughout our entire life. There is two authors on wellbeing.org, Liz Kalanawaska <laughs> and Daska Hatton. And this is what they say. Our bodies are a map of our histories, the narrative of our lives. They record the ways in which we were brought up. They chronicle our accidents and illnesses our emotional experiences, and our beliefs. They reflect the stories we tell ourselves and the stories others tell about us. And, who lives, uh, who dies, who tells your story? <laughs> Sorry, Lin-Manuel, had to get that there. Yeah, but like, and who gets to tell our stories? You know, people, you know, if you, I in some of this reading, I kept coming across the word gist. And I know the word gist is just, you know, the important, at, like just the general idea of something. You get the gist of it. But this was from the Britain website. And I guess gist there is like gossip worthy, something gossipy. When you hear that, <laughs> when they gist you or there's a gist over here. And I thought that was really interesting. Just even the different words we use. And I had a, a point there and now I've just completely forgotten. Oh, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Who you know, if people are gossiping about you, if people are gisting, I don't know if you can say gisting. I'm not exactly sure how it's used. But if, you know, they're telling it, like you were saying earlier, as one of eight kids, that, you know, when you're looking at the family, and I me have one of four kids, same kind of thing, you're looking at the stories of your life and 
But from your siblings' perspective, you are a different character in their story, even within the same experience that you've had. But so this this whole gist thing, this whole perception thing, this whole telling other people's stories, it always takes me to the situation, the system we have in our legal system of witnesses and how I don't understand how witnesses, eyewitnesses have so much power because what we see, you get five people seeing the same thing, they might have five different stories. And so how do you discern which one is closer to some relative truth? I don't even know how that would work. Yeah, it's very, it's a subjective lens or an objective lens. Subjective would come from the person telling the story. And, you know, working with a lot of people, they come in and they give me a subjective story about why they why they sought me out? Why are they here for yoga or uh, for a yoga class, a yoga therapy session, a massage session, whatever that is? Everybody that I come in contact with has that subjective story. But there's also an objective story. And I think that's what you're referring to there. As they're telling their story, it's being processed through the lenses of what do I hear them say? How do I see their body language complement what they're saying? Can I read um, breath changes as the story goes on? Like I had mentioned earlier, sometimes when I'm frustrated, it comes across like I'm angry because I start to breathe really fast and talk really loud and do things that are out of character. So that is a story that somebody will look at and say, this is the story I'm telling about Teresa. She was really angry when she was saying that thing. But really, I was maybe just frustrated trying to figure it all out. So there's the different lenses that those stories come in and we gather them based on what somebody is verbally sharing with us, but also all of the nonverbal communications that even if our focus is not to study nonverbal communication, it's inherent. Mm -hmm. Going back to the look my mom had or the look my dad has or the rolling of eyes or some of these things that we just know, they're nonverbal communication. And we get to process our stories through what we hear, but also through all of our senses and our intuition. And that's how I tell the story of Sherry, right? We talked about how do others mm -hmm. tell a story about us? And I can't tell your story. I can tell you about our relationship and the fun things that we do and our planning sessions <laughs> and you know, the differences in our personalities from my perspective, um, not from yours. And it's how I experience the world. And it just seems that life is meaningful because it's a story. And we have the ability to tell the story of most, I'll say most, most situations in a whole variety of different ways, depending on how we felt the day that we experienced that story. What would happen if the story happened the next day? And one day I, f I experienced it feeling sad and a little depressed. And the next day I exper experienced the exact same situation. And I was happy and joyful when, that's, when that event came up. Two never different stories. Never step into the same river twice. Yes. It comes back to that. And also, you know, people talk about there are two sides to every story. I call shenanigans on that. There are three sides to every story. There's each person's interpretation. And then there's the objective view that we can't really access because that requires 
a pure filter, which I don't think any of us have. Are you enlightened yet? I don't know. I'm not. I, I'm far nah, from it. I'm um, not. But I the might other be on thing, a path. <laughs> well, we're all on it. We're all on a path. I think that um, wherever that's leading, I don't know. But this idea that we are story, we are an anthology of stories. And that anthology grows with every day. It's kind of like when Brene Brown wrote Cartographer of the Heart or something that's, I know, Atlas of the Heart or so, something like that. I was like, oh, I wanted to use the word Atlas. And we're cartographers and we're architects and we are, you know, journey people. We are all of it. And all of these archetypes show up in our stories, in this anthology that we get to call life. One of the things I'm going to go back to Tim Goundry and his TED Talk. He says, think of when we look up at the night sky. We see thousands of random specks of sparkling light and know that beyond them are billions more. It's beautiful, chaotic, and impossibly complex for a human being to take it in at once. And yet what do human beings do? We find patterns, and we talked about patterns, we find patterns in the stars and make constellations, creating images and stories from the chaos. Orion, the hunter and the great bear, and I'm going to mess this up, and Cassiopeia, I don't, I've not, don't know that one, and Cassiopeia only exist in the collective imagination of humanity. That's that shared fiction, those shared stories. And yet these collective fictions have allowed humans to navigate across oceans millennia before compasses and satellite navigation. So, I mean, the power of story, we create these collective stories, but then they give us maps, they, get, they create compasses, they create, you know, the meaning, the ways we get to where we're going and collective understandings, which, you know, I don't want to start getting into Jung and the collective unconscious because it's not my scholarship, but I think there might be something there. I don't know. I think it's Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia. But, uh-huh. <laughs> that but, makes sense. I Who knows? Know. <laughs> uh, that's the way I've heard it. And, I, you know, we know words. They can be pr- pronounced in many different ways going back to And I've ubiquitous. never heard it before. Yes, ubiquitous. ubiquitous. Look at you. Look mastering at me. Ubiquitous. Look at me mastering, right? But, you know, it. stories have been such a part of who we are. I don't know about you, but for me, when my children were born, I read them a story every night from their first day. And even as they got older, then one of them might read stories at nighttime. So we sat together with story reading before bed every night, right through to my children learning to read by them taking over the role of reading. It was such a great memory of the times that we read all of those stories, sometimes the same book over and over and over again, because it was a favorite. And you know, a sadness when they got big enough where they're like, yeah, Mama, you don't have to read to us every single night. We are 20. No, only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> We're 20. We can do it on our own. But uh, <laughs> but story was stories and other people's stories created a story of a bonding that happened between mm-hmm. me and my children. The bonding around reading fairy tales and just spending this dedicated time night after night after night cuddled up together and sharing adventures of somebody else's making and those adventures kind of gave depth to that time that we spent together and the time we spent together is the story of a deep close relationship of sharing something that we love 
both of my sons are avid, avid readers. Um, their bookshelves are abundantly filled, like the one behind you. I have a very stark background. You have so such great stuff. Mine is all hidden in a closet. Stories, right, <laughs> of the different ways that we do things. But, you know, we have the story, and then we have how it tapped into our emotions. And we have the questions that arise, the conversations that arise from story. So, I mean, I have three kids and I told my firstborn, I would read to her, even in college, if she called me, I would read to her at night. I didn't realize that organically there would be a separation from the parent reading. There just it kind of naturally um, waned. And my firstborn, I read the most because secondborn was a little less interested, thirdborn a little bit, but, you know, it sort of waned. Everything has different timings. But with my firstborn, I read a lot of books that I never read as a kid. So we read every single Nancy Drew book. And because Nancy Drew had many different writers, you know, who came in and wrote for her name Keene, Carolyn Keene was the pseudonym of the author. But we could tell, we were like, this, this telling, this, this writing feels and sounds different than the book we just read. They're using these words differently. Like we could feel when the author changed just from the experience of the book, but there was still a formula to the book. And because Nancy Drew started, I want to say in the 30s, I don't really know, but I think it may have been the 30s, maybe the 40s, times have changed. There were no cell phones. You know, we use language different today than we did then. Certain words were used, like gay was meant to say happy. So at one point I said to Cassidy, do you know what gay means? And she said, it means when a boy likes a boy and a girl likes a girl. And I said, it does. I said, and in this context, it meant happy. You know, so it was an opportunity to have a conversation about, you know, life. And it was wonderful. It was bonding, like you said, this reading thing. But because the language and because the cultural landmarks were so different, why didn't when Nancy was stuck in a box, why didn't she just call for help or text a friend? Well, she didn't have that as an opportunity. You know, we needed to to use other resources and other ways in. So reading books from different times. I also want to, this I thought was also interesting and it fits, I think, into what we're talking about in terms of traveling. So we travel to different times. We travel to different places that we might not be able to travel to in these bodies in this lifetime. Mm. Uh, some we may. And some activities we would never actually want to do in real life, but we get to live out through story so that we can have some experience and learn from that through the story without having to actually be a criminal or be whatever. So um, again, back to Tim Goundry. I'm going to have to actually watch his fucking TED talk now, <laughs> but um, just give him an extra shout out here. Says, our lives are short. If we're lucky, we get to live for 80 or 90 years. That's, that's a long time. The things we can experience, the places we can visit, the people we can meet are all limited. Limited by time, limited by space, and limited by perspective. We can, after all, only experience the world through our own eyes. But stories defy lim these limitations and give us access to human experience in its entirety. Not only can we visit a country in the world, we can visit them at any point in history. We can experience what it was like to be a Russian aristocrat 200 years ago or a slave in ancient Egypt. We can experience the thrill of murdering someone. Oy and the subsequent crushing paranoid guilt without having to go through with it ourselves. And please don't, don't do that. Right. Um, we, we can experience the pain of losing someone we've loved for 50 years, the terror of living through the darkest moments in history, 
and the excitement of the greatest moments of human achievement. We can visit whole new worlds and all the while gain a deeper understanding of our own lives. A life without stories is half-lived. Unquote. Unquote. Unfucking yes. quote, man. Yeah. Right? <sighs> right. So the story takes us on a journey. And depending on the intention of that story, if there is one, we can influence, we can sway a position, we can pers persuade, we can tell a story so that people can learn and discover their own truths throughout um, the stories or the parables that we share. We teach our children sometimes by stories we tell about our own childhood that we want to communicate something that we want them to take forward, something that we want them to understand. So we tell a story about ourselves in a similar situation, how we may have handled it, what happened, maybe how we got punished when we didn't do what we were supposed to do. Something in there that allows our the listener of the story and the person we're sharing the story with to discover for their own. You know, sometimes we have stories or shows or movies that have a cliffhanger at the end. And, you know, the cliffhanger is going to let us write our own ending. Mm -hmm. It can go this way or it can go that way. And sometimes we are lucky enough to know that the next season is going to come and bring us clarity. But other times it's left for us to fill in our own learning, to take the whole storyline and to choose one of the endings that are possible in this cliffhanger and say, that's the one. And I find those really interesting when they've happened in my past where a fa our family would be watching something and there would be no defined clear ending but you know there's a couple of choices to see everyone's different perspective on why they chose the ending that they chose and what do you discover about yourself and the story of this story based on the ending that you would choose and you bring up another really incredible point about storytelling and that's endings if you've read a great book and were ever disappointed in the ending a great film or movie or anything, TV, film, movie, I guess they're the same thing, <laughs> but any kind of story where you got to the point, you've invested energy, you've invested your heart, your soul, your mind, your time, your energy, and you get to the end and you like fucking phoned it in. Like that's the ending. If it's a cliffhanger, yes, you get to use your imagination. Endings are, I think, arguably the hardest part of the writing of the story or the telling of the story? How do you end something that may not be done? It may not be over, but, you know, because you presumably at the end of a story you've read or that you've seen, the characters' lives continue to, to go on. They continue unless it's a complete Armageddon and the whole world has been destroyed. But I find that when a story, it, when there's an ending that is really well done, and I will say this, and not everyone's going to agree on that, so I invested in Supernatural, the TV show. It was 15 seasons long. By the time I had a yoga student, Martha. Hi, Martha, if you're listening, who came up to me after class one day, story time. And she said, Sherry, do you watch Supernatural? I was like, what the fuck is Supernatural? And so she says, like these demon hunter hunting brothers and, you know, they ride around in their Impala and they do the. And I was like, oh, my God, totally sounds up my alley. Well, at that point, they were filming season 11. So I was and this is a TV show. So there are like 22 or 23 episodes per season, not like eight or nine episodes. 
So I had some serious catching up to do. So it got to the point where my kids from me, where's mom? And my husband would say, oh, she's somewhere watching Supernatural. I don't know. So, but here we are invested 15 seasons. You can see how the characters have evolved, how the storylines have evolved. And yes, there were some seasons that were better than others. And by the end, I was so scared how they were going to end it because there was nothing they could do really that would be satisfying because they were ending a show that I loved. And so I didn't want it to end. <laughs> But I got to say, it was really satisfying. It was a, they, it wasn't, the, 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 the second to last episode was brilliant. And that could have been the ending. But they did the one last one, which tied it all up. And I don't always like things tied with a ribbon. I don't always love that whole kind of like, let's make sure everything is where. But this was a beautiful way to end a story that so many of us had invested in. And yes, I went to two of the the conferences, <laughs> the supernatural Comic-Con equivalent nerd over here. I love it. But so I get sucked into stories and I'm going to do a quick little plug for something that doesn't even exist yet because I know we, we did the, uh, anyway, Go ahead. Uh, Bring I'm it going, on, sister. I am in my head. I have another podcast that only has a logo and an idea so far, but it's called psychotic break lost getting lost um what is it getting lost in a story and not wanting to come back or something like that it's some, but it's all about getting lost in stories and sometimes the getting lost part is what happens right before we get found and so these stories they have power that story had power <laughs> but we talked about this yesterday too we talked about stories that and specific things in life that keep coming up over and over and over again and it keeps showing up and what you had said when I told you, you know, the story keeps coming up, the conclusion we came to was because it had a beginning and a middle, but it didn't have the end yet. In life, sometimes we haven't gotten to the place where whatever that event is, whatever that story, whatever that experience that happened, past or somewhat present, doesn't have an end to the story yet. And what you said was, it's not ready to go to the publisher yet. Like, how do we decide? <laughs> when, when do we submit to, our story? When do we submit the story to the publisher? <laughs> and sometimes in the processing of stories, in the processing of what life is, and knowing that each of these stories that we're processing of the events in our life with our jobs, our family, our friends, our listeners, whoever that story is interacting with, is that there's another side. Like you said, there's two, there's their side, there's my side, and then there's some facts and, and the things that none of us have a clear enough vision to see with pure accuracy. But, you know, I have store, a story that keeps coming up of some things that I want to do, some choices I need to make. And I feel like the story is calling me. I already know the answer. It's calling my heart. I know that I have this calling to do this thing because it keeps surfacing and it keeps surfacing. And my heart, I always say, your heart always knows the answer. That little voice inside that keeps saying, do it, do it, do it, do it, knows the answer. And then your brain is like, well, what about this? And what about how much it costs? And do you have the time? And it, it starts giving you this dialogue of questions. And I used to think my brain was trying to talk me out of it. But really, I think what it's trying to do is help me prepare to do it by saying, here's all of the different parts that we need to put into place to make this happen. Mm -hmm. And instead, sometimes I just get stuck in the circle of, I don't have an end for the story yet because I just won't decide. Yeah. So, And really, the uh, end of our story doesn't happen until we die. 
And even that's not the end because we have people who remember us and will tell our story. So I don't know how many generations it takes for our story to truly end. And if it's true what they say about energy, that it can't be destroyed or created, then the energy that we have put into the world will somehow ripple through time beyond anyone that we know who's ever known us beyond all of that. So, you know, the energy of our ancestors is real. The energy of all who came before us is real. Um, how we identify and manage all that energy and tell that story, you know, are we all revisionist historians? Is that is that how it is meant to be? So that each generation can relate to the stories as they're told? Or are the archetypes in their in their integrity so relatable that it doesn't matter how you tell the story as long as the archetypes, the characters are are true to themselves. Um, you, it, oh, go ahead. No, I did not. It's an old story. Okay. <laughs> We're all on those. Yeah, I'm sure I've told. I, well, I guess mine is too. I was going to say <laughs> way back in season one when Val uh, Gay was on, she said when we were talking about, I think it was your mom, she huh. said, say her name, right? That saying people's names after they are no longer present with us when they have moved to wherever that next yeah. place to move to is, is the way of keeping those stories alive, of keeping that memory with vibrancy in as part of the story as being alive. And, you know, that takes us a little bit in the stories of seasons. And we've talked about our children. We've talked about our parents. We've talked about our contemporaries and our stories right now. But each season has an end. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Whether we're talking about the seasons of the calendar or the seasons of life, maybe the season of this job to your next job, whatever it is, there is a progressional, uh, there's a progression that's a season. So that each death and each end of the season is the beginning of what is next. And I find that part of the story really, really encouraging because I look for the end. What's the end of the story that you just told us about watching Supernatural? But Supernatural is still alive because you can't, you shared. And it's in reruns. It. And it's in reruns and always. It's, <laughs> it's always on. You know, at my dad's funeral, one of the guys got up and he was talking and he said, we have two deaths once when our body dies and once when people stop saying our names. And mm -hmm. so he was saying that my dad would not actually die that second death for a long time because he was you know, pretty prominent in his field and people will be referring to him for a long time. But that, you know, is that sense of, you know, say the name. And the other thing, like endings, this whole idea of endings is fascinating in a philosophical place because yesterday when we were talking and we were talking about the sort of serpentine or the circle of creation, this creation, preservation, destruction, and then space before creation. So, and as a person who loves words, I think we often conflate last with final. So the last thing, that was my last meal with my, my family before the summer, but it wasn't my final meal with my family. I don't know when that will be. I mean, that'll be before I die. You know, the, the final one is the very, very, very last one ever, ever, ever. But the last one is just the last one that happened. It doesn't mean that something isn't coming next. And so I feel like endings more reflect the energy of last more than final, because every story that comes to a conclusion is moving into that next beginning. Like it's this circular energy of, of movement. And so is there ever a hard stop, a hard ending? 
Because what I think is an ending right now to, you know, a part of my career that I'm no longer teaching public classes, and yet now we're back and doing in-person things that feel that are nourishing that same part that used to do that. So there was my final class in one particular place, but it was only my last class that I taught. You know, there will be more. There will be other iterations of that experience that create new, fresh energy and new stories. But it's just this anthology is is never ending. There is no bookend. You know, there's two covers, but they keep expanding. Same like an accordion <laughs> that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's like why I like my binder that I showed you yesterday. <laughs> so the, it, when I run out of pages, I can just add more loose leaf in and I can take this yeah. page of the story out and move it to a different place. Hey, I thought that was the middle of the story, but it made a really good ending. Let me move that page. And <laughs> my story is complete. Cut, cut and paste old world. <laughs> Cutting and pasting old world style. Yeah, me and my pencils. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think we're, we're wrapping up here. I, would, I have one very, very brief practice. It, it, it may be brief. It may not be. But when, I, when my kids were little, I wanted to write a book and call it Once Upon a Time, Line by Line. And my mother used to do this with my kids. She would start, she would actually do the writing when they were very little. And she'd say, once upon a time there was, and then each my kids would fill in and they would just keep filling in the story. So rather than having, sometimes the idea of sitting down and writing something can be daunting, a whole beginning, middle, and an end. But if you have a blank page in a notebook, I, if you're like me, you have 14 notebooks that have either three pages written in them or nothing at all collecting that or a, a blank document on your computer, but just start out in the headline once upon a time and then write dot, 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 and maybe create like you would for a spiritual practice, a time and space where you will dedicate that time to write. And even if it, it could be five minutes, it could be a half an hour, it could be, you know, however long you choose, but sit down and write a line of the story from that moment, in that time, from that energy, and write until you're done, and only you will know that, close the book and put it away until the next day. Open it up. You can read what you wrote and continue, or just start fresh and write from your best recollection. And then give yourself a timeline. Say, for a week, I'm going to do this. For a month, I'm going to do this. And that way, you know when you put it on your calendar, when that last day is coming, the last day, not the final day, the last day comes, you can give yourself an ending, even if it means you have to make it up and it's all made up. So have fun, write your story once upon a time, line by line. Each line can be a story of its own, a beginning, middle, and an end for just that line, or it can be the thing that feeds into the next. But have some fun. There is no one's reading it or checking up on you, but you may find at the end, you have something worth examining line by line. That's a great practice. I have many of those uh, journals as well, <laughs> a line or two, some of them written a lot, some of them with the, uh, you know, years missing. And then all of a sudden I roll across it and I was like, oh, I can write something down in this. Look, right? I've just got this beautiful <laughs> book. And you know that part of my story about writing and having journals is they have to be palpable, that I love soft leather books or those that have a texture on them that, you know. I'm much more inclined to write in a journal that feels amazing in my hands than I would be in those notebooks that we were talking about earlier. And that was hard notebooks with the um, 
Oh, the marble composition the books? The marble composition oh, books. I with love the, them. Uh, <laughs> I love them so much. <laughs> you know, they got softer over the years and they started to be a little bit more flexible. But anyway, yeah. we have so much to do this season with stories and some guests that will be visiting with us. So we get some other voices into the stories. Yeah. And we will have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So welcome to the beginning of season four. And while we we love to ask you for your stories, we have found that to be a, a very general question and often maybe overwhelming. What story? Since we have we live these anthologies of stories. So what we're gonna ask you today is email us, send us, you know, a story that maybe a generational story, something that your parent could be your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle, your grandparents, someone told you a story that sticks with you that you tell and retell. Would love to hear something from you. Any reactions to what we're going to be diving into this season? And as always, if you have any ideas for things you would like for us to talk about, we'd love to hear. And maybe write it in story form. Oh, you know, one last thing since they're writing the story. You and I were in a mastermind where we had to tell a fairy tale. And I sat when I was like, oh, I have to tell a fairy tale. You know, it has to be magical and, and fun. And, and I sat with my pencil in my hand for a little bit. But then I just wrote once upon a time, just like you said, because that's how fairy tales begin. And I didn't care what I was writing because I'm thinking, oh, this assignment, we'll see what happens. And in the end, it was so much fun mm -hmm. to be able to just do the once upon a time. So maybe your story changes its format a little bit to make it fun and exciting and compelling right. to once upon a time it. Right. So, you know, maybe there's because um, for every fairy tale, there's a big bad wolf. Maybe. <gasps> I, a friend of mine and I years ago, Shauna, she was in the first season. She lives kind of like this fairy tale existence sometimes. And there's always an ogre or something. So I said, we should write something called Enter Big Bad Wolf. So maybe there's a big bad wolf. Maybe you're in the woods. Maybe you're in a castle. You know, create your, your atmosphere in a way that is completely different than the reality of where you are. Because <laughs> why not? Have fun. Have fun. Have fun. Have fun. And until next time. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please click the like and follow buttons and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. These ratings help our Grassroots podcast to become more visible to more people so we can include more stories. Written reviews are like stars on steroids. If you're so moved, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We are just getting started. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, please email us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. We'd like to thank our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. <laughs>